Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. As always, I'm Nika Spalding, and this Friday feature is going to be a little bit different. Uh, this is actually just a recording from a sermon I recently preached at my church called St. Jude Oak Cliff, and it's a sermon titled Preaching Grace and Doing Justice, and I think it ties in nicely with the themes that we've seen in Amos, as well as it just provides uh, an overview of the Trinity to the cross, so to speak, and so you'll have to buckle up. I speak very quickly. This will be a longer episode than what we're used to, but it's Friday. You don't have anything else to do. You pretend to work on Fridays anyway. So anyways, uh, I hope you enjoy it. And since I won't be coming in at the back end of it, then I'll tell you now, if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, the God of grace and the God of justice is crazy about you. Peace out, friends. Today's scripture is from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-tied beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure inequity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and that your word is nourishment. It somehow, in a study of it, brings about your glory and our good. Uh, So help us to, help me to speak rightly and beautifully about you, but help us all to love you better, to love our neighbors better, uh, and to be more like your son because of it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. Uh, I have, around Dallas, become a little bit of a millennial expert. And so I get asked to speak on podcasts, I get asked to talk about them, and part of the reason why is when I became a women's minister, I had the duty and obligation of trying to get multiple generations to play nice together. And all the older generations, the elders, the boomers, and the Xers all complained about the millennials. And I kept explaining to them, they're the future of the church, so we're going to have to figure them out. And so I spent a lot of time studying millennials. The second reason why I spent a lot of time studying millennials is I am one, and I wanted a sneaky way of talking about myself. And so... Uh, I have studied them. And so uh, some sociologists have argued we are the most studied generation ever, which I think Gen Z, who's coming behind us, will eventually be that, and so on and so forth. So if you're wondering if you are a millennial, if you were born sometime between 1985 and 2005, put some ish on those because there's always a little... If you find yourself a little bit more cynical and you're near 1985, you might be a Gen Xer. That's how you know. If you find yourself blindingly optimistic, though the world's burning, you might be a millennial. And so... So anytime a new study comes out, I I, I read a lot. I read a lot of Barna research. I read a lot because I only know myself and I want to know others so I can love you all well. And so in 2018, Barna came out with a study, a landmark study on just the state of evangelism. How's the church doing? 
How are we doing with evangelism? And there was a lot of data that you would expect, a lot of data you wouldn't expect, and things like that. But the one piece of data that stood out to everyone, everybody was writing think pieces about it, was this. 47% of Christian millennials believe it is wrong to evangelize to someone of a different faith. 47%, almost half of believing millennials believe it is wrong to evangelize to someone of a different faith. But being millennials, we of course had to make it difficult for the analysts to understand this because over 90% of us believe that sharing our faith is a major part of our, of our witness. And over 90% of us say the best thing that could ever happen to a person is conversion in Jesus. We think it's wrong to evangelize, but we definitely think you should become a believer, right? And so people began scratching their heads, what is going on here? To add even more complexity to this, in 2013, Barna did a research study on evangelism. 2013, you know the number one witnessing generation was millennials? Far and away. Most sociologists said if the millennials, or if there's going to be a revival in America, it will be led by millennials because we are the generation that's sharing our faith more than any other generation. 2013, we are leading the way. 2018, half of us say it is wrong. So what happened between 2013 and 2018? If you can't do the math, I'll help you, 2016. So that's what happened. I believe that what happened, and I've talked about this at great length, is that in 2016, the term evangelical became less theological and more political. Suddenly, the term evangelical started ending up in the newsrooms and in the newspapers, and people began talking about it as if it was a voting block instead of an evangel or a theological term. Evangelical inherited baggage, whether we intended it for it to or not. And so suddenly evangelical, I think what's going on is millennials are like, ooh, I don't like the term evangelize. Share my faith? Sure. Witness? Absolutely. Be missional? Of course. Evangelize? Oh, no, no, I don't evangelize. That term means something negative. But I believe as Christians, we're supposed to take back terms that are theological and they belong to us. We get to determine what they mean. And so the term evangelize actually comes from the New Testament. It's the Greek word euangelion or euangelizo. The euangelizo is the verb form. It simply means the good news. Euangelion is the good news. And so to euangelizo means you go about gospeling to others, sharing the good news that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so we know that this term can belong to us. But then you ask people, what does it even mean though? What does it mean to evangelize? Okay, you say sharing good news. What does that mean? Well, if you ask one camp, typically named the evangelicals, they'll tell you, sharing the historical truth that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. That's what evangelism means. Of course, you go to another set of people and they will say, oh, no, no, evangelism is feeding the poor, looking after orphans and widows in their distress, sprinkling some Jesus if you need to. This group says, give them Jesus, maybe feed them if you have to. And this group says, no, 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 feed them, maybe give them Jesus. And since we're Christians, we all hold hands and sing kumbaya. No, not at all. Right, we argue and we fight. But often there's a third way, and I believe that this is the third way, and I'm indebted to Harvey Kahn, a guy who was a PCA pastor who wrote in the 70s, the least likely source you to come to expect writing about evangelism, but he would say evangelism is preaching grace and doing justice, inextricably connected. That evangelism is always both of those. It's not this or this, it is this and this, and as Martin said, together you cannot separate them. Evangelism is preaching grace and doing justice. More simply put, evangelism is making visible the invisible. Evangelism is going around telling people there's a king, a kingdom, and a kingdom ethic. You can't see it, you can't smell it, sometimes you can taste it, but I'm going to make visible the invisible. How? By preaching grace and doing justice. By doing these two things and inextricably linking them together, we will show the world 
that there's a king, a kingdom, and a kingdom ethic. And so I believe we have to take these terms back. And you know why I believe all this is true? Because the Bible tells me so. So in the next two weeks, we're going to do a two-part sermon series on preaching grace and doing justice. And Martin encouraged me to just do the book of Acts, and I said, nope, I'm doing the whole Bible in two weeks. So if you think that I'm speaking fast now, you have no idea how fast we're about to go. So in week one today, we're going to go from the Trinity to the cross, and then next week we're going to go from Acts to Dallas 2019. I suggest you buckle up. If you have loose hairs around your face, you may want to pin them down because my words are going to blow past you. Uh, But that's why we record it, and you can put it on half speed when you get home so that you might catch all of it. But we are going to look at all of the Old Testament and the cross and see how always God has been saying that evangelism is making visible the invisible by preaching grace and doing justice. So are you all ready? You better be. Let's go back to the beginning. Now, when I say let's go back to the beginning, most people think I mean Genesis 1, but there was actually a beginning before the beginning. See, prior to creation, there was the Trinity. And the Trinity eternally existed, three persons, one essence. This is the definition we want you guys to always know. The the Trinity, three persons, one essence, eternally existed, and they lacked nothing. So the question theologians have always asked, then what were they doing? And people like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and others would say they were dancing. It's a theological term called perichoresis. It's where we get peri, perimeter on the outside, choresis, choreography, and they are orbiting around each other in self-donating loving relationship. What did they have? Perfect love, perfect righteousness, perfect justice. They lacked nothing. It is wrong for a pastor to tell you God was lonely, so they created you. You cannot stand up under that. It is wrong to say that God needed anything, so he created you. You cannot fulfill a need that God has. God was perfect. And the reason why God creates is because love has a tendency to beget. Boy meets girl, they beget a relationship, begets an engagement, begets a marriage, begets children, begets family, love begets. It has a tendency to overflow. It grows and creates things. So the Trinity lacking nothing, having perfect love, perfect justice, and perfect righteousness, then created. And we know the creation account, he makes all the things, and then it builds all the way up to the pinnacle of creation. And I know we just had clear the shelters. Dogs and kittens are not the pinnacle of creation. I know some of y'all think they are. I'm going to go ahead and burst your bubble now. But please go adopt pets from the shelters. Now, the pinnacle of creation is, of course, man and woman made in the image of God. This stunning moment in all of creation when God says, let's make this one like us. Why? Because God is on mission too. And God wants to make visible the invisible. God is invisible. So he's trying to make visible what he's like. So we're to be like him. God's going to make us his representation. We're going to make visible what is invisible. We're going to preach grace and do justice. And so I'm going to keep using these terms of love and righteousness and justice. And so I'm going to define them for us because I want you guys to understand what I mean when I say them. And so the perfect love that is in the Trinity that we are then also supposed to rule and reign with is this Hebrew word ahav. There's several words in the Bible that talk about love. But this idea of ahav is conduct characteristic of affection. It's not Hollywood and Disney and swiping right or left, whichever direction is positive. I don't know. I don't swipe yet. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, no, it is, it's obedience. It's fidelity. It's loyalty. It's the kind of love that says I'm in it with you no matter what. Not when my affections wane, but my conduct will push me towards fidelity, obedience, and loyalty. And then these two terms, righteousness and justice, you've heard Martin talk about them. They hold hands. You cannot divorce the two of them. 
They are same, two sides of the same coin. So this idea of righteousness, it's this Hebrew term tzedakah. You'll see it throughout the scriptures over and over again. It means maintaining right relationships regardless of status, wealth, gender, ethnicity, that you would always have equitable relationships among you. Why? Because when God made us in his image, he endowed every person with dignity and honor. So to treat anybody without righteousness is to misunderstand the invisible. God's making visible the invisible. So we are to rule and reign and treat each other as if there's equity here. That's what righteousness is. This idea of tzedakah that we would always, regardless of who you are, treat you with equity. Then this idea of justice, mishpat, it's a term that Keller says is giving people what they are due, whether that's punishment, which is the one part of justice we like. Anybody grow up watching cops? Yeah? We, we tend to think of justice like that, handcuffs and a penal system, but justice is more than that. It's giving people what they are due, whether it's punishment or protection or care. That the mishpat, the Old Testament understanding of justice is more than just punishment, it's protection and care. It's giving people what they are due. So righteousness, right and equitable relationships, justice are the steps that we take to return to righteousness. There is a fracture in our relationship. We are no longer right. Justice is the means by which we restore. We bring back protection. We bring back care. And if necessary, we punish. These are the terms that we're going to see over and over again throughout the Bible. Because I believe that God was already showing us throughout all of Scripture that making visible the invisible means preaching grace, preaching grace and doing justice. And we see it right there in the creation account that we are the visible representation. So how did we do? Yeah, we did terrible. Oh my gosh, have y'all read your Bibles? And you don't get very far. You're like breathing in Genesis 1 and 2 because you know what's lurking. You're like, oh gosh, and then we blew it. Yeah, we do terrible. We don't even get two pages through our Bible. And God, because he's not some petty God or he's not some jealous God, he allows us to choose to love him back. So he says, look, you can do anything you want in this garden. You just can't do this one thing. And I want you to love me. I've given you everything. There's bounty and blessing and goodness. You will rule and reign. You are my vice regents. You are meant to be the declaration of love and justice and goodness in the world. You can go and run free, run naked, jump through the trees. I don't care what you do. So don't eat that tree. And enemy comes and there's separation and there's brokenness. And we get to see on display from God what it looks like when grace and justice come together. That when God comes to the garden and we have rebelled, what we deserve is death and what God gives us is provision, grace. But there's also punishment. We have to leave the garden. We all pain in childbearing and the, the work will be toilsome. Right away, God shows us what does it look like to be on mission, to preach grace and to do justice. And we see it right there in the Garden of Eden that God is showing us Adam and Eve. Okay, but this is what it's got to look like. And then he goes to the serpent and my favorite verse in all of Genesis 3, 3.15, he's like, we're going to kick your head in. So just know that's coming. And I'm like, that's what you get because that's mishpat. That is justice. An unrighteous God would look at the serpent and go, it's no big deal. It's fine. Go ahead, slither on away. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to kick your teeth in. It's the first real hint that we know that God has not lost his place in the world. Genesis 3, grace and justice together. And then things keep getting better from there. No, no they don't. Creation, fall, flood, tower, just spiraling out of control. And we're like, oh, somebody help us. And so God's like, stop. I got a plan. I've always had a plan, but I'm going to pretend like it's new. I'm going to go get this guy, Abram, and I'm going to make him a blessing. 
I wanna make him into a huge family. Abram's gonna be the visible manifestation of what I'm like. He will be a blessing to the nations. He will be the manifestation of the invisible. He's gonna be the conduit of what it means to live with me. And we love those verses. But you know what I notice is we often skip over Genesis 18 and 19. This is what God says about Abraham. He says, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How do you do that? By doing what is right, tzedakah, and just mishpat. How is it that Abram is supposed to go about the world and be the preaching of the grace to the world, the manifestation of God? By being right and just. This is what it means to be God's representation in the world. This is what it means to bring about justice and righteousness in the world. It's what Abram was supposed to do. We get Abe, Abe has Ike, Ike has Jake, Jake has Joe. And then next thing you know, we're in Exodus. How are we doing in Exodus, guys? Not so great. Yeah, the Old Testament's a little bit of a bummer. You kind of have to look for the good. So we get to Exodus, and all of a sudden, the words open up. It says, and then there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And you're like, uh-oh. And so the people, they live in the land of Goshen, and they start to become powerful. All the brothers of Joseph, they're like making all their, you know, animals, and they're kind of growing up. And anytime a minority group gets a little bit too powerful, often a majority group comes in and oppresses them because of fear, because we don't know how to live with others. And so God hears the cries of his people, and he sees their afflictions. And we see in Exodus a perfect display of what it means to preach grace and do justice because how does God redeem his people? Does he come in and just whoop Pharaoh and walk out with his people? No. He has every right to. How does he do it? Moses, go tell Pharaoh what I'm like. Be the visible representation of the invisible Yahweh and tell him over and over and over again that he has a chance to repent. Pharaoh has 10 plagues to figure this out and he does not repent. Moses is preaching grace and there's a little bit of justice every time, right? The plagues come in. But one of the beautiful things that I think often gets overlooked because we love the punitive part of justice is we forget that there's protection and care. In those plagues, have y'all ever noticed that over and over again in the Bible it says, but that plague did not fall on Goshen? Where are the Israelites living? In Goshen. It's because justice is not just punitive, it's also protection and care. Darkness is gonna fall on the land, but not with y'all. There's gonna be plagues, but not with y'all. I got you. I'm going to visibly represent what my values are to you. And then the culmination, of course, of the plagues is Passover and Moses comes and he's like, hey, you're gonna need to put some blood on the doorpost and God will pass over you. How arrogant do you have to be to ignore that after nine plagues? Like, I may not believe, but you better believe I would've put some blood on my doorpost. I'd be like, I don't know, but sounds like he's got some power. Pharaoh doesn't. And we see grace and justice perfectly on display as God marches his people out of Egypt. We see the punitive and the protective care of God as Moses is preaching grace and doing justice in the land of Egypt. So the people leave and they're walking along. And then in about Exodus 19, God's like, Moses, why don't you come up on the mountain? We need to have a little DTR. So Moses is like, okay. And God's like, hey, I would like to take things to the next level with my people. And Moses is like, Okay, and so Moses runs back down the mountain. He's like, I haven't seen the ring, but I think God's gonna get on his knee, y'all. So, and, uh, and God tells him, I wanna make you a royal priesthood and a holy nation. What do priests do? They're the representation of the invisible God to the visible people. 
I wanna make this whole nation my representation of what's invisible. I want to make you a royal priesthood and a holy nation, are you in? And the people say, we will do all that you command us. Liars, but that's what they say. So Moses is like, good news, God, I think she's in. And God's like, all right, here's my law. Right, it's an interesting moment. I wanna make you a people set apart. I wanna make you people who will preach grace and do justice. And they say, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. And God says, I'm so glad you said that. And the law comes down the mountain with Moses. And Moses teaches them the law. And that's the part of our Bibles that we skip over in about February when our Bible reading portion. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Leviticus. But if you look at the law, it is regulatory in that it regulates our behavior. It tells us how to behave. It's a good law. We should follow it. But it's also revelatory in that it reveals what God's like. It's regulatory. This is how you're to behave, but it's revelatory. Why are we doing this? The job with the law is always to push through the law and go, oh, that's what you value. Right? We do that in American law all the time. The reason why you can't drive 110 miles an hour on 35 is because we value people. Please don't kill people. Law is always meant to push through and go, oh, the value is the preservation of life. Got it. Okay, so these are the laws we obey. So what does God's law reveal that he values? Justice, care for the orphan, widow, poor, and foreigner. That quadrant, orphan, widow, poor, and foreigner, you will see them over and over and over and over again. Why? It's because they are the vulnerable. They are the ones that when we talk about the mishpat justice, that they are the ones that need that protection and care. To say that I'm a person that values justice, then you have to look for the vulnerable around you and protect them and care for them. So you see this in God's law all the time. And God's law gets a bad rap. It's like, why does he care how we boil our meat? And I'm like, no, 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 push through that and look and see who God's trying to protect and elevate and love and keep near to him. God's word says he draws near to the brokenhearted. How does he do that? He sends us to care for the brokenhearted. He sends us to be the visible representation of the invisible. If we're looking after the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the foreigner, then when God says, I draw near to you, you know how he does it? He sends his people. Who, If we understood the law, we would be running towards those people and going, how can we care for you? How can we especially love and care for you? Because you are more vulnerable than others. God gives the people the law and they say, we're in, liars. But that's a good part of the story. So if you're looking for a good part, Exodus 24, don't keep reading though. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see preaching grace in the lots, the festivals, the sacrifices, the forgiveness. Have this festival, welcome people in. Have these sacrifices, show there's a way to make atonement. Have these, these forgiveness rules in the Bible so that you guys will maintain your relationships with each other, preaching grace. And then the justice, restitution, care for the vulnerable, cast out the evil among you. They hold hands throughout the law because God is teaching his people to be visibly manifest what he values. We get to the end of Deuteronomy and then the book of Joshua. Joshua's a total babe. I don't know if you've read his book lately. I like him. Um, I have certain crushes. And then we get to the end of Joshua and they're finally in the land, the land that God promises them. And so God is gonna appoint to them judges, people to rule over them. And so you think, okay, what's a judge then? A judge is a conduit of the judgment of God. They are making visible the judgments that God would deem right and good. And so what is a judge supposed to be like? He says, I, in the book of Deuteronomy, which tells you about the judge, he says, I furthermore admonish your judges at that time that they should pay attention to issues among your fellow citizens and judge fairly. 
whether between one citizen and another citizen, so whether these people are equal, judged fairly, or a resident foreigner, someone with a lower status, still be fair. And then he goes on, he says, they must not discriminate in judgment, but hear the lowly and the great alike. Class, doesn't matter. How are you to judge? With mishpat and tzedakah. Nor should they be intimidated by human beings. Doesn't I anticipate what the powerful are going to be like? Hey, judge, I can invite you to my huge feast and banquet. What's that poor person going to give you? Why are you ruling my favor? Don't be intimidated by that. Why? Because judgment belongs to God. It is not yours. It is God's. You are simply the visible representation of my values. If the matter is being educated is too difficult, then you should bring it before me. What are judges? They are meant to be the visible representation of the invisible values of God. God tells them in the book of Deuteronomy, do not be swayed by the powerful. Don't be intimidated by them. Hear the cases of the lowly. Why? Because I care about them. Because that's what judgment looks like. It's punishment and protection and care. How do the judges do? Y'all already know what I'm going to say. Terrible. They're terrible. In fact, the book of Judges is widely known as the spiraling down. It's awful. It ends with a brutal rape of a concubine who is then cut into 12 pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel because they have forgotten what justice and righteousness is. It is a horrifying story. I mean, I read it this week and I started tearing up. I was like, whoa, this is really bad. And it's because the judges didn't do what God asked them to do, and they continue to spiral out of control. And so the people, being super wise, also known as idiots, ask for a king. They get to the end of the time of judges, and they're like, this ain't working for us, so we'd like a king. And God tells them, hey, here's the deal. You already have a king and a kingdom and a kingdom ethic. Remember? Like, I'm your king. This is my kingdom. We have a kingdom ethic. I already spelled this out for you. I said you in. You said we in. Remember? You have a ring. We did the whole ceremony. And they're like, yeah. I just kind of want a human king. And he's like, okay, here's the deal though. Human kings tend to be unjust. He warns them. First Samuel, hey, they're going to take your sons and your daughters and your money and they're going to make themselves all about power and privilege because that's what humans do. And I'm your king and I'm telling you, I give away power. I give away those things. And they're like, no, we want a king anyways. And so God anticipating this still tells them, okay, if you want a king, then this is what your kings are supposed to look like. In the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us, when he sits on his royal throne, he must make a copy of this law. It's talking about the book of Deuteronomy. Every king is supposed to have a copy of the law. Why? Because they're supposed to know it and embody it. They are the visible representation of the king. So you're supposed to have your own copy on a scroll and given to them by the Levitical priest. It must be with him constantly. They're supposed to keep this sucker on their arm when they're on the land. They're like, oh, we got a problem? Excuse me. Deuteronomy 7. Yep. You got to care for the poor people. Thanks. And then move on. It's going to be with him constantly. He must read it as long as he lives so that he may learn to revere God, his God, and observe all the words of this law and these statutes and carry them out. Then he will not exalt himself above his fellow citizen. The king is not above the fellow citizen. Why? Because back in the creation account, everyone has honor and dignity. You're not better than anyone. Righteousness does not allow you to put yourself above anyone. He will not exalt himself above his fellow citizens or turn from the commandments to the right or to the left. And he and his descendants will enjoy many years ruling over his kingdom in Israel. The kings are supposed to be about the book because the book is about the one true king. We are supposed to be the representatives of the invisible king. There's already a king and a kingdom and a kingdom ethic. And the king that rules on earth is supposed to be an echo of that. How they do. 
David does okay. I give him like a C plus, grading on the curve here. Solomon, Solomon's kids, they can't even decide who's supposed to rule. Did y'all know they break the kingdom in half? It's hugely problematic, it's not supposed to happen. So all of a sudden we get the book of Kings, you got 19 kings in the north, they're all bad. Every time you read about a king in the north, you'd be like, loser, and just keep reading. Kings in the south, 20 kings, 12 good, or excuse me, 12 bad, eight good. It's not that great, not even betting 50%. We've got the southern kings, and then there's this crazy moment in the book of Kings where King Josiah is a later southern king, and he is really young, and he comes into power, and he's walking through the temple, and he's like, what's this? And he begins reading the Torah, and he's like, we're not doing any of this. And he's like, oh my gosh, do y'all know we're supposed to be reading this? We are very far into the rule of kings who God has said, you're supposed to have this and read it and rule like it. And we get real far into the Southern kingdom and Josiah's like, we got a problem y'all. And to Josiah's credit, he brings about a little bit of a revival, but it doesn't last super long. And so we see the kings are just continuing to cycle. They have forgotten that they are the visible representation of the invisible king. They have forgotten that what it means to be on mission with God is to preach grace and to do justice. And instead, they're preaching power and success. They all the time talk about their chariots and their wealth. They do exactly what God told them they would do. Human kings are not like me. Power corrupts. I'm telling you, guys, this is how you're supposed to live. Then finally, we get the prophets love the prophets. They just come out and start punching people. And the prophets are contemporaneous with the kings. So you got some prophets that speak to the southern kingdoms. You got some prophets that speak to the northern kingdoms. And you got about three prophets who speak to the foreign nations. And they all kind of have these same messages. And that's what you heard Carter read to you is Isaiah. Isaiah is a big dog. Okay. He's like, whoa, major prophet. And we love reading Isaiah around Christmas, right? How many of y'all know the Christmas passages? Like, yeah, we know that. But have y'all ever just like read Isaiah? you may need to like put a helmet on and put a mouthpiece in because it's gonna punch you in the face over and over again. And so the message of the prophets continues to be you have forsaken justice, which makes you unable to preach grace. You, you are completely failing to be the visible representation of the invisible God because you have forsaken justice. So we see that in Isaiah, in Isaiah 1. He comes to me and goes, hey, look, all these people are like, oh, no, 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 we're following you. We're doing our sacrifices we're bringing our fattened calves and we're, you know, we're doing the things that you tell us to do in the law. And he's like, no, 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 no. The law is regulatory and revelatory. Like you think you are following the law because you do these sacrifices? And what's interesting is we have archeological evidence that they were doing that. You can go up to the Northern kingdom of Israel today in the city of Dan and you will find old weird bones that all the archeologists are digging out and being like, cool, bulls. I'm like, okay but I listened to a lot of podcasts and somehow I find it interesting now. So yeah, they were doing their sacrifices. They're like, is this enough, God? I mean, I know we're putting our foot on the necks of the poor. We didn't read that part of the law, but we're doing what you've asked us to do. And he tells them, I hate your feasts. Please do not sacrifice another bull to me. The thing that makes God so upset, the prophets are a mouthpiece of God. What makes them upset is they have forsaken righteousness and justice. And he sends the prophets and he says, I don't know how to make this any more clear to you. I have told you what I'm like. I've demonstrated it in the garden. I demonstrated it on Mount Sinai. I told you what the kings are supposed to be like. I have not ceased telling you that the way you are on mission with me is to preach grace and to do justice. And you think I delight in your sacrifices while you abuse the vulnerable? 
that's not a just God. That's not a good God. And so thankfully, when we read the prophets, we get to see what God values. And what's crazy is they're in the midst of rebellion. Isaiah comes to them in the midst of their rebellion, and he's like, um, hey guys, God hates your feasts. He hates that you trample on righteousness and justice. But did you catch what Carter said at the end of it, though? But there's a day coming when he will make your skins white or your sins white like snow. Your scarlet sins will be white like snow. Why? Because even God, in his message of repentance, preaches grace. There is a sacrifice for your sin while preaching justice. Please get right. So we see that in Isaiah. We see it in Amos. I think Amos is my favorite prophet because he doesn't say anything positive until the very last few verses. But he says, justice must flow like water and righteousness like a stream that never dries up. That's what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And then his buddy Micah says, man, this is what God has required of you to seek justice, love, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Why? Because again, we are the visible representation of the invisible king, kingdom, and kingdom ethic. We are the ones that God has sent to go in the world and proclaim liberty for the captives and freedom. How can we do that if we're the very people keeping people down? So the Old Testament ends, and it's bleak. You know, the way the Old Testament ends is they come back, the, the temple has been destroyed, and then uh, they have some Medes and Persian rulers over them that are fairly kind, and they're like, you can go back and build it up. And so they go back, and they like repair the temple, and they're still not even doing that great, because they're like, well, yeah, the temple's in disarray, but so is my house, so I'm going to build my house first. And then the people are like, build the temple! And they're like, okay, fine. And they come back, and they build the temple. And they finally build the temple, and then they have a sacrifice. And what's interesting is the older people who remember it, before they got taken off, they weep. The younger people, millennials, are like, yay! And the older people are like, no, 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 this ain't it. Something's missing here. And the Old Testament ends on this like, ugh. It's darkness. It's not good. And then the New Testament just bursts forth. And suddenly we have this message in Colossians 1.15. And this is what Paul says about Jesus, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Where have we heard that from? God is so passionate about us being the visible image of the invisible God that you know what he does? He just comes and does it. He's like, I've been telling you. I told you in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, I told you the whole time and you guys stink at it. I sent you prophets. I sent you preachers. I sent you everybody. You know how good you are at it? Terrible. I'm not mad though. I will just come. And Jesus does it perfectly. You wanna know what it looks like to preach grace and do justice? Just watch Jesus. Just watch it. It's no surprise that when he starts his ministry in Luke chapter four, this is how he says, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, preaching grace. Who does he do it to? The poor. Why? Because we're going to do justice. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, regaining the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes on the scene and the first thing he says is, I am here to preach the good news. You know what it's gonna look like? Grace and justice. Because I am the visible image of the invisible God. I am the embodiment of what we've been trying to get y'all to do all along and you're not gonna be able to do it. And I ain't mad. I'll just do it for you. At the end of chapter four, he says, I have come to bring good news. And so he goes out and he cleanses lepers. He heals the paralytic. He feeds the hungry, but he also preaches he proclaims the good news. He draws people near to him. 
He preaches grace and he does justice. And then in Luke 11, he goes to those who claim to be the representation of the invisible God. And he says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. What does it mean to be the visible representation of the invisible God that you would proclaim grace and justice hand in hand, that your life would be an embodiment of those values and, and that you would call others out who proclaim to speak for God and yet forsake those very things. So Jesus does it perfectly and then we know he goes to the cross and if you wanna see grace and justice kiss, just look at the cross. But the reality is, is that we deserve condemnation for the sins that we've committed and Jesus goes and he brings the punishment upon himself. There is perfect justice on the cross and the death that we deserve is paid for so that grace and judgment hold hands. And if you try to separate those, you don't have a cross. If you look at the cross and try to remove, if you went to Jesus and said, no, on the cross, Jesus, was that about grace or justice? He'd be like, and he would answer you with a parable and then you'd walk away sad. And then he'd look at his disciples and be like, the kingdom of God is like this. And they'd be like, we don't get it either. And then 2,000 years later, Martin and I would preach about it. So that's what would happen if you asked him, because you can't separate them. That Jesus Christ was the imperfect embodiment of preaching grace and doing justice. And so we look to the cross to know that that's what it means, that Jesus came and made visible what was invisible to us. People touched him. People touched him. They saw him. He was lifted up on high so that grace and justice could be on display and we would talk about it for the rest of our lives. And so what's the so what for us? If you need justice, you can cry out to God. And some of us need justice. Some of us have been really, really wronged. And the other side of that is if you need mercy, you can cry out to God. That at the cross, it means that you, if you are the victimizer, if you have harmed, if you have wronged, if you've been unfaithful, if you have done damage, if you have failed to live up to the kingdom ethic, and I know many of us can relate to that, but if you've really harmed someone and you're wondering, is there mercy for me? You know what the cross tells you? There's mercy for you. And you can cry out to God and ask for mercy and he will give it to you. And the cross also means that if you're the victim and you need justice, you can cry out to God because justice is not just punitive, it's protective and it's caring. So when you say, I need justice, God does not look away from that. He sent his son to accomplish that. And so if you need those things, then you cry out to your God. And then the last part of this is that in light of this message, we need to go about making visible what is invisible. That's our role. We are the new priests. Now they stunk at it. We're not that much better. But we have the power of the spirit. We have the cross for forgiveness. We are the embodied people of God that are gonna go about and make visible what is invisible. And so the first one is this, is you heard Bonnie pray about it. Did y'all know that the threat of white supremacy rally in Dallas was so strong this weekend that the Dallas Morning News wrote about it? So I want you, if you're white in the room, I want you to take your white shoes off and just put yourself in the shoes of a black mama whose kids are going back to school this week. And imagine you live in Oakland and all you need to do is run to Target. That mama needs justice. And it does not serve her for us to pretend like that doesn't exist or to not make visible those things. We will speak of injustice in this church because the people of God make visible what is invisible just like Jesus did with the Pharisees. 
That is our role as the people of God to point and go, that's not just. And whether it needs punishment, protection, or care, we will seek to bring about righteousness there. And the second way that the church makes visible what is invisible are the sacraments. I got to baptize my stepdad last weekend, and y'all, I don't know that there's a greater honor I'll ever have in my family. I have, God has blessed me in ministry, mostly because I'm a woman, and there's not a lot of us that do what I do. So I get to be there because token women thing is a thing, and I love it. I'm like, I'll speak. I'll be on the cover of your magazine. You can put me in two photos side by side and let's see if people notice. They'll think we're twins uh, if it means I get to go. And... Um, so I've, I've traveled the world and photographed ancient manuscripts. I've held ancient manuscripts that survived the bubonic plague, right? I, I, have, I have preached to stadiums of thousands of people. I've written six curriculums. I don't know if y'all know that. I get asked to be on very prestigious podcasts. I don't know if y'all know that. I'm a big deal. Because <laughs> I'm a woman. And uh, yeah, I have a world-class education. I've had world-class opportunities. And I am telling you, there is nothing more beautiful than holding your stepdad and making visible what God did in his life. And you pull him out of that water, sorry Martin, we dipped and you know, we came up and, and a whole auditorium applauded because it's our joy to make visible what's invisible. That's ours, that's our heritage. That belongs to us. We get to declare to everyone, I belong to Jesus. And then it's why we do this table every week because this table is a representation of that we have a king and a kingdom and a kingdom ethic. This table is where justice and grace also meet. That we say this is paid for by the king on the cross. And that regardless of class and gender and equity or whatever, whether you're a good Christian or a bad one, this is your table. And you take and you eat and you declare, I believe in God. And I know you cannot see him, but he is as real as anything else. He is as real as this cracker and this juice in my hand. And I'm going to partake and trust that God is going to nourish me today. Because my joy is to make visible what is invisible. So as you come today, I hope you know that you are in the long lineage of believers who have been tasked with that Genesis 1 mandate to rule and subdue the earth with love, justice, and righteousness. And part of the way we do that as we celebrate what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you that you are just and righteous and loving. And we thank you that you have at times made visible what is invisible so that our weary hearts could be nourished. And we are grateful that it is also part of our privilege to get to do the same. So I do pray that us at St. Jude, that we would be a place we know that we can cry out for grace and justice and you hear us and you see us and that we would be the people that run toward it to make right what is broken. I ask all this in the name of the beautiful, loving, merciful Trinity. Amen.